Our next scripture comes to us from the book of Revelation, the entirety of chapter 5. So if you want to uh, open your few Bibles and read along, you're welcome to. Then I saw on the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God the saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne, and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The word of the Lord. Now, this week's scripture is jam-packed with layers of symbolism. There's a scroll, there's seals, there's horns and eyes, there's all the repeating sevens. There's four living creatures and 24 elders, so four gospel writers, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, 12 plus 12 is 24. Uh, we're cracking the secret code. And this kind of thing is what so much of Revelation becomes focused on that I hope you'll forgive me that I don't really spend that much time on that kind of exegesis. Instead, I wanted to focus on the emotion that is at play in this part of John's vision and the powerful message of hope and inclusion that we find there. Our passage begins with the angels of heaven offering a scroll and asking, Who's worthy to open it? 
And John looks around and discovers that there is no one who is worthy. And he writes, I wept bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and look inside. Now, whether you choose to interpret the scroll as the book of life or the revelation of God or the symbol of entrance into heaven itself, that part doesn't matter as much as that John has been told that there is a verified truth of God that he is being denied access to because he's not worthy and nor is anyone else. And that moment reminded me of the summer before my senior year in high school. I went up to Malibu, which is a young life camp. And over the course of the week, every night, the whole camp had been hearing this story about God's relationship with creation and humanity. And on the second to the last night, the story comes to a sharp turn. And the whole camp is told that God is so fed up with humanity and the sins that we are constantly committing that the gate to heaven has been closed and there is no longer any pathway to God. And that's how the night ends. And the kids were mad. I mean, they stormed out really angry, ranting at their counselors and at other kids. The stories up until that point had been parallels to Hebrew scripture. And I was enough of a theology nerd even at that time to know that what was going to be coming on the next night was the big reveal that Jesus was the one who was going to be able to open the door for humanity again, and that Jesus' death and resurrection was going to be how God once again comes into communion with us. But John's bitter weeping was exactly what I saw that night at Malibu. There were girls literally crying that they weren't going to get to go to heaven. There were kids arguing with staff that they were teaching heresy. And it was way more emotion than I had ever seen in my peers at that time. It highlighted for me the deep and visceral reaction that anyone has to being told that they are rejected by God. In the midst of this sorrow, an elder says, do not weep. The lion has won. And John looks over and sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain, who's able to walk over and open the scroll. And at this moment, I kind of wish that John had just said, and then Jesus, bearing all the scars of his murder, just walked over and took care of it. He didn't, but that's what he meant. And instantly, that bitter weeping is turned into triumphant jubilation. There's singing, there's trumpets, there's prayers, and stuff to make the air smell good. The crowds grow by the thousands, all praising and shouting at their loudest volume, glory to Jesus. And they sing, you are worthy 
to take the scroll and break its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you bought for God those of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You made them a royal house of priests for our God, and they shall reign on earth. Those of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. This heavenly party is not just a hooray that Jesus was the one who was worthy. It's a celebration of what happens when the scroll is opened. Everyone, everywhere, is now a child of God. Tribe, tongue, people, nation. All of humanity is now in the royal house of God without reservation, without condition, without earning it or buying it or suffering for it. The door is open. That's the word of the Lord. You are worthy already as you are. So why have we expended so much energy and caused so much pain persisting in believing otherwise? In the thousands of years since the scripture was first put to papyrus, we have piled on rules and rituals, interpretations, conditions, works and acts that have been declared necessary to be one with Christ. A friend of mine, Annie Maceros, recently started a podcast called God Help Us. And this past week, she had Pastor Dave Rohr, who was at UPC at the same time that Danny and I uh, worked there with Annie. And Annie had asked Dave to come on her podcast because she wanted to talk about the evangelical movement. And she knew that Dave had actually begun his faith life and his uh, seminary training as an evangelical. And she shared with him in the course of this conversation that when she had been in college, now she had grown up at UPC and she was at a a private school, that another student told her that even though she'd grown up in the church, she wasn't allowed to call herself a child of God until she had been saved. And you can hear Dave make that sort of low groan that happens when you hear something painful. Somewhere between scripture and now, we have created and perpetuated so many conditions in order for this promise to be for you. Are you baptized? Are you a church member? Do you tithe? Did you have sex before you got married? Are you gay? Are you Jewish or Muslim or atheist? And now we start to get a little uncomfortable because what does it really mean when the angels and elders proclaim every tribe, tongue, people, and nation? 
And I think our tendency to cling to this idea that there's some sort of condition on God's grace is the same reason why we will still struggle with the parable of the hours. That's a story that Jesus tells in Matthew about the man who hires a laborer at nine and then at noon and then at three and at five, and he pays them all the same wage no matter how long they had worked. And at the end of the story, the people who he had hired at 9 a.m. are kind of mad because they got paid the same as the guy who only worked for an hour. And the man says, but didn't you agree to work for me for that wage? And for those of us who are steeped in capitalism, we really hate this story because it sounds incredibly unfair. And I remember the first time that I heard it, I thought, well, okay, but he probably didn't agree to work for you a second time. (laughs) See, we hear this story and we focus on the guy who only worked for an hour and got paid for the whole day and think, but he didn't deserve it. See, we miss the part of the story where that man, that same man who worked for an hour, had been there at 9 a.m. He'd been there the whole day and no one hired him. No one valued him enough to invite him to work. And he sat there all day watching the others go to work, earning money, and wondering how he was going to eat and get shelter and find a way to be valuable to that society. Jesus is saying explicitly in this parable that everyone gets the same reward because our human value is not based on what we deserve. It's purely based on the love and grace of God. See, the sin of conditionalism is that the conditions are usually set by those who have decided that they already deserve heaven or God or eternal life. And because they have deemed for themselves that they've earned it, either by works or sacraments or money or lifestyle, that they are free to set the conditions for everyone else. But that's why we have to remember the bitter weeping. We have to remember the teenagers at Malibu. When we place conditions, we are truthfully placing barriers on what it means to be a child of God. And we're not only causing incredible suffering, but we are defying the promise of the resurrection. And to be honest, that impacts the way we view not just God, but the meaning of our faith. Walking with Jesus then is at risk to become a chore to be completed, a transaction that must be paid, instead of a relationship of love that we are transformed by and passionately grateful for. I mean, consider the very act of being here this morning. One of the primary ways we practice our faith is by attending worship each week. We know it's important for our spiritual growth and for our community's growth. But we also have to constantly manage the things that pull us away. Brunch with friends, swim meets and baseball games, Super Bowls, 
or maybe just a really strong desire to sleep in and binge watch the newest Netflix series. These are the real things that interfere with our worship life, and at times we can easily slip into a kind of judgment of those who are here every week versus those who are here every few weeks. And then suddenly we find ourselves like the eight-hour worker who's upset that he was paid the same as the guy who only worked an hour. Jesus enters into relationship with us not because of what we have done for him or what we have proven ourselves to be. Jesus calls to us because we are loved. And we respond not because we're promised rewards, but because we feel that love and we long for it. And we come into this sanctuary not out of obligation, but because it is here that our spirits are lifted, our souls are nourished, our hearts are mended. This is a space of communion with the divine, where our belovedness is made real. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. The scroll has already been opened. Your blood has already been bought. Your royal house has already been built. You are free. And you are beloved. Amen.